Thanks for listening to this Garden City Chapel podcast. Today's audio comes from our Easter worship service on April 24, 2011. For more information about the ministry of Garden City Chapel or to listen to other podcasts like this, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. you to open your Bibles to Matthew 26, and while you're finding that passage of Scripture, let me just thank our musicians this morning. Cindy, thank you. I had someone ask me last week, who's going to be playing at the chapel this summer? And I said, Cindy Senator, and they were so excited, so happy. Last year, I got an email from someone who said they just loved the offertory that Cindy had played, and could I get the music? Could, I, could they find out where they could go buy that? So I emailed Cindy or called her, and she said, well, I just kind of made that up. So uh, she's that talented, so thank you, Cindy. We're glad to have you back at the chapel. And then Russell and Christy, who've been singing at the chapel longer than I've been here, and uh, we're glad to have them back. They were at our sunrise service, and Russell and Christy are from Conway. And so if you'd like some more of their music, just drive through Conway sometime. And uh, Russell said he may have a few things in his car, but uh, we'll have them back when they can bring their their CDs and some more product, and uh, you can take take them home with you. So uh, thank you all for being here. Thanks for for sunrise and for uh, leading us here. I want to take you to a garden this morning. Anybody planted a garden yet this year? This is audience participation time. What, one person, two have planted? Okay, three or four. All right. Uh, Five. What would you plant, Don? Tomatoes. Tomatoes. All right. Is that it? And peppers. All right. Does he have a green thumb, Debbie? All right, so anybody need some tomatoes, what, in about a month or two? Just go by the Randall's house. They live in Surfside. I'll get you their address. Might be better to go when they're not home, and uh, you can <laughs> get some tomatoes, some homegrowns. I want to talk to you about a garden, and, and when I started studying this passage, it, it occurred to me that gardens are pretty significant in Scripture. The very beginning of Scripture in Genesis, we see a garden, don't we? Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden. They, of course, uh, ushered sin into the world, and because of that, uh, we we're, we're bear that. We're born into that nature ourselves. There's also a garden, and that's where Christ would be buried. He was buried in a garden. And so when those ladies came the first, uh, that first Easter Sunday morning, they came to finish preparations of a body that they thought was still in the grave. That was in a garden. But in between those two gardens was another very significant garden. And as I've studied it this this season, in preparation for this message, God just really kind of unpacked and unloaded a few things for me, and so I want to share that with you as we really look at the sacrifice of Christ. I don't know how far back you can remember going to Easter services, but uh, I can remember as a, as a young child going to sunrise services on Coleman Hill in Macon, Georgia, where I grew up, and, and I don't remember a lot about what was ever said. I remember the music. They always had kind of a, somebody playing a trumpet and and those kind of things. But Easter became one of those things that if you're not careful, you almost take it for granted. You almost think that Christ went to the cross, but he knew he was going to be raised from the dead. And it just really wasn't that big of an issue. But folks, it was. I want you to see this morning the agony of Christ in the garden. And I think we miss that. But hopefully this morning we'll catch a glimpse of that. Let me read this passage to you from Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, 
sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Just to set the context of this passage of Scripture, Jesus has shared with his disciples the Last Supper. He's told the disciples that one of you will betray me. And we read in the Gospels that the disciples kind of got together and said, Is it you? Because I know it's not me. Which one's it going to be? And Peter speaks up and says, Lord, I won't betray you. If it costs me my life, I won't betray you. And right before this passage, we see something interesting. It says all of the disciples said the same thing. So the eleven that were left because Judas has been taken out at this point. Judas has gone to lead the people that are going to arrest Christ in the garden. All 11 of them chimed in and said, we're not going to betray you. No way, it's not us. They leave there and they go over to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus leads them down the Mount of Olives to the place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil press or olive press. And if you go to that area of Israel, to Jerusalem today, you will find the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll see there, over to the side, an oil press. This was a place that Jesus loved to pray. That's how Judas knew where he was. Judas knew where he would be because Jesus went there often to pray. Probably a private landowner, a gardener that owned this particular grove of olive trees. In fact, if you go there today, there's olive trees there that were there 2,000 years ago. Because olive trees just keep growing, and as the the old tree dies, the trunk becomes hollow, and the olives that fall on the ground spring up new olive trees. So you go there today and see olive trees, the trunks of trees that were there when Christ was praying there. You'll also see a rock that they built a church over. And I don't know if that's the exact spot or not, but a lot of people think it is, and they go and almost worship the rock. But you know you're in a spot where Jesus experienced incredible agony. Let's look first of all at the agony of what Jesus went through. He he enters the garden with 11 disciples. He says to eight of them, sit here while I go over there and pray. In fact, he really doesn't give them any more instructions than that, but he takes three more with him, and he tells them to sit here while I go over and pray, and you keep watch. In fact, the word for keep watch means stay awake. You keep awake with me while I go over there and pray. Now, this, this event, this encounter occurs or is, is mentioned in all four Gospels. Although John's Gospel, all he really says is Jesus went out to pray. 
But Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us details, and I'm going to draw from some of those parallel passages to give you a little more detail. But the most detail comes from Matthew, and that's the, the passage that we're in today. And so Matthew, in fact, one of them is Mark or Luke that says that he went a stone's throw away. Now, I don't know how far that is. You know, I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head thinking it depends on how big the stone is and how good your arm is, how far that is. But I think that was simply an idiom back in their day like it is today. You know, it's just a stone's throw over there. I think it was far enough to be a somewhat private and yet close enough where I believe the disciples could hear Jesus pray. I believe he was praying out loud. And before he walks over there to pray and to just really fall on his face before the Father, he tells them, my soul is deeply grieved. In fact, he said, I'm at the point of death. The word deeply grieved is the word that we get periphery from. And what Jesus was saying is, I am surrounded by sorrow. Have you ever experienced that in your life? I know you have to some extent where you just feel like grief is so heavy, sorrow is so heavy that you feel surrounded by that. And the problem with those kind of moments are there's just nowhere you can look to get relief. You have to look up to the Father. That's the point that Jesus was at. But, folks, I don't want to trivialize it and compare it to anything I've ever experienced because the, the experience Jesus was having was literally to the point of death. That's how heavy his heart was. That's how heavy his life was at that moment. And it said he fell on his face. And here's what he prayed. Father, is it possible? Is there any other way? I read a book last year, and the author of the book was speaking on prayer. But basically, he was saying that the, the cross was not God's original intent. That that just kind of happened. That it was kind of plan B. Folks, let me tell you something. You haven't read the Old Testament if you believe that. The entire Old Testament has pointed to the fact that there would be a sacrifice on the cross. That's what Passover is all about. It's leading and pointing to the fact that in the Old Testament and for hundreds of years, the Hebrew people had celebrated Passover with the, with the sacrifice of a lamb or a goat. That goat had to be a certain age and it had to be unblemished, spotless, because it was pointing to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished. And he meant those hundreds of years of sacrifice have been completed because the spotless Lamb of God has given His life for many on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We don't have to keep doing it year after year. And so it wasn't plan B. It was something Jesus knew from the very beginning. And yet, when He gets to the garden, His soul is so heavy, He knows what's in front of Him. that He said, I'm grieved even to the point of death. And he prays three different times. In fact, he comes back after the first time and says, you know, could you not stay awake with me for an hour? So Jesus had been praying for an hour at this point, and this is just the first segment of his prayer. I believe probably each time he prayed about an hour. So this event may have been about three hours that he was on his face before the Father. We'll talk a little bit more in the next point about kind of what was going on there. But get the picture. Jesus is in agony. But every time he prayed, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so the question I've had as I've studied this over the last few weeks is, why the agony? I've read commentators, some, one commentator said he was in such agony because he was feeling lonely. 
He was about to go to the cross. He knew that his disciples were going to abandon him. He knew that, that God the Father was even going to turn his back, that he was going to feel forsaken at the cross. But folks, I think it's a lot deeper than that. I don't think it that he was just having a pity party and feeling lonely. I also don't think it that, it that he was looking at the cross and he realized that he was going to give up his life there and he was scared of dying. We read stories of believers who in past centuries and even recently have given up their life singing when they were being burned at the stake or being flayed alive. And so was, are they more, are they braver than our Lord? No, Jesus wasn't a coward in the garden. The agony he was in was not because he knew he was about to die. The agony was this. He was about to have the weight of the sin of the world placed on him. The Bible says that he who knew no sin would become sin on our behalf. Many women look at me. This is important. The reason that we don't understand that is because is we don't feel the same way about sin that God does. Too often, we embrace sin, we're comfortable with it like a pair of blue jeans. Jesus had never sinned. He's fully God and fully man. And the Bible tells us that God hates sin. And I think the reason we don't quite grasp the depth of his agony, that he could be in such agony, he was at the point of death, is because we're too comfortable with sin. And more than that, he was about to experience the wrath of God. The Bible tells us that the wrath of God is stored up for sin. And at the return of Christ, those who've never trusted him as Lord and Savior will experience the fullness of God's wrath. Now, now I've got some good news. If you've got a little place in your margin there to write just a few verses, write, write down Romans 2.5. Romans 2.5 says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then listen to this, but much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So where's the good news? The good news is this. As a child of God, the wrath has been satisfied on the cross. I don't understand that fully. I don't get what Jesus was going through that had him at the point of death. But I understand the good news. As a child of God... I don't experience that wrath. My sins have been forgiven. When God sees me now, he sees me with the righteousness of Christ. Folks, that's good news. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose the third day, that's good news for the believer. But it is a horrible, dire warning for the unbeliever. Why the agony? It's because Jesus was going to become sin. And he was actually at the point of death over that. Let's look at the participants in the agony. And I could probably expand this, but just four I want to highlight. First one is Satan. What do you think the devil was up to? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, about three years earlier, he had gone into the wilderness to fast and pray as he began his ministry that would last about three years. 
He was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted. Now, at the end of that 40-day experience, we see the big three temptations where Satan basically said, let me change God's plan. You've come here to be become the king of kings and lord of lords. Hey, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this. You want to redeem mankind? I'll give you mankind. Just worship, worship me. Or, hey, let's test God. Let's prove that you really are God's son. Why don't you cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and he'll send his angels so that you won't even bruise your foot. Or, you're hungry? Why don't you just do a little trick here and prove that you really are the son of God? Why don't you turn those stones over there into bread? Now, folks, after 40 days of not eating, a rock starts looking good. <laughs> it looks like a loaf of bread. Jesus could have turned it into bread and eaten it and satisfied his hunger. Yet what does he do? On every occasion when Satan tempts him, he quotes Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth. It's written that you should not put the Lord your God to the test. So, folks, I think now three years later, you remember what it says at the end of those temptation accounts? It says that Satan left him and waited for a more opportune time. And, folks, I think there were times during Christ's ministry where Jesus was tempted. And yet, on every occasion, he did what the Father told him to do. Read the Gospel of John. It's just throughout the whole Gospel of John. Jesus says, what I say, I don't speak my own words. I speak what the Father's told me. What you see me do, I'm not doing it on my behalf. I'm just simply obeying the Father. So when Jesus prayed, God, is there any other way? It was at the point of, God, this is horrible. The agony, the sin. God, is there any way that we can redeem mankind? Is there any way that we can save these people? without me having to bear the burden of their sin. And on every time, he knew the answer. So the second person in the garden that I want to focus on was Jesus. He obeyed. In fact, Matthew is more specific. The other Gospels, Mark and Luke, simply say that he went back the second time and the third time and basically prayed the same thing. And yet there's a little difference in his prayer in Matthew. The first prayer is more, is there any other way? The second time he comes back, he says, since there's no other way, your will be done. Folks, he wasn't trying to bend God's will. He was looking for the strength because of what he was going through. He was looking for the strength to get to the cross. So Jesus prayed and Jesus obeyed and the disciples slept. Now, don't be too hard on them. I think you and I would have been asleep too. I've asked the question as I've studied this. One is, why did Jesus keep going back and checking on the disciples? What was their role in all this? Folks, Jesus knew they were coming to arrest him. I think Jesus needed desperately this private time between him and the Father. He just wanted a heads up, some warning that they're about here. And so he left eight of the disciples just simply over here at the entrance to the garden. Then he takes... Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. And we see him do this at other times. We see these three men who were partners, by the way, in the fishing business. If you go back and look at when Peter was called to be a disciple, he called Peter, who was called Simon at that time, and then he looks at the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who were with him, and called them also to become fishers of men. He also took them up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, folks, these guys didn't always get it right. They thought, hey, let's just hang out here on the mountain. Let's build a tabernacle, one for each of you. <laughs> In fact, James and John's mom, do you remember what she asked? She said, Jesus, grant me a favor. My, my sons have been following you now for a few years. 
I think maybe I've earned the right to ask something on their behalf. Would you let them sit on your left and on your right when you come into your kingdom? Jesus said, it's not up for me to decide seating arrangements in heaven. And also, they, they cannot drink the cup that I'm going to have to drink. So Jesus had already been thinking about this cup that he's praying now. Is there any way that this can pass me? The disciples were asleep. The same disciples who said, we won't betray you. When Jesus comes back, he specifically calls Peter by name and says, Peter, could you not stay awake for one hour? Could you not keep watch for an hour? Why were they so sleepy? Luke tells us, if you go to Luke's version of this, Luke tells us a little bit from a medical standpoint what was going on. He says they were, their eyes were heavy because of sadness of heart. They were going through the same thing Jesus was, not quite to the full extent, but they saw what Christ was going through. They saw the agony that was in Him, and it was stressing them out. In fact, we see Jesus in Luke's Gospel is where we find out that Jesus was under such stress that He sweat drops of blood which is a medical phenomenon that has happened since then. There's a name for it. I can't pronounce it. But because of that, the disciples' eyes are heavy. Now, why does Luke tell us those two things? Well, Luke was a physician. We find out in Acts that Luke traveled with Peter some and with Paul a lot. And Paul greeted him in one of his writings and said, Greet Luke, or he says, I send greetings from Luke the physician. Luke was a doctor, and so he, he had a little bit more insight medically speaking, to what was going on with the sweating drops of blood, but also just the sorrowness, the sadness of heart. Luke points that out in his gospel. So the disciples are sleeping. In fact, finally, Jesus comes back the third time and says, Are you still sleeping? Now keep in mind, he's been praying for hours. You ever gone to sleep while somebody else was praying? I remember a church I served in North Carolina. I was the youth pastor, and on Sunday morning, a group of men would get together and pray at the altar, and we'd just get on the steps, and it were more round than this, a little bit more space at the front, and we'd pray. And the pastor always wanted to be on that side of the stage, so he'd put me over here. So I'd be over here, and we'd pray. We'd pray out loud, but the guy sitting next to me or, or kneeling next to me was named Ronnie. And Ronnie would pray, great prayer, but pretty much as soon as he finished praying, he went to sleep. And that wasn't bad, but he started snoring. And I remember sitting there a lot of Sunday mornings thinking, I might as well go home because I can't hear a thing anybody else is praying. I realized they weren't praying to me, but I couldn't participate in the prayer. Ronnie was also good even during the service. He could sit there. You've seen people like this. He could sit with the Bible open, and it just, they just looked real spiritual because you think, man, they're just reading Scripture through the whole message. You realize... They are sound asleep. One of the things my wife and I did our first year of marriage, especially, was every night, the last thing we'd do before the lights went out, we'd go to sleep, was we prayed together. And one night we were praying. In fact, we took turns. So it was Eva's turn to pray. And right in the middle of the prayer, there was this long pause. And I thought, boy, this is spiritual here. She's having a deep experience with God. But then she started snoring. So I woke her up, made her finish her prayer. But, folks, I understand when you're tired or when you've been praying a long time. In fact, one of the great theologians of the last century said, let me see if I can get his quote right. He said, if you, play for, if you pray for three minutes, I'll pray with you. If you pray for six minutes, I'll pray for you. 
If you pray for nine minutes, I'll pray against you. <laughs> so I understand what the disciples were going through to some extent. They had a, a, a sadness of heart. They didn't exactly know the fullness of what Jesus was experiencing, but their hearts were heavy. So they're asleep. But the fourth entity in the garden that night was an angel. Luke's gospel tells us this, that an angel came and strengthened Jesus. Why does Luke tell us that? Again, I think just as a doctor. He's pointing out the significance of the burden that Christ was under. And folks, I think when Jesus said he was, he was in such agony, he was at the point of death, he meant it. And I think if the angel had not come and given him strength, he would have never made it through what was going to happen the next few hours. So God was very, the Father was very well aware of what was going on in the garden, and he sent an angel to strengthen his beloved son. Because right after this, Jesus would be arrested. He'd be dropped down into a pit in Caiaphas' house. He would be beaten. He'd be spit on. He'd be mocked. He'd have a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He'd have to carry his cross, and he ultimately would be crucified. What a humiliating and painful death. And the angel came and gave him strength. The last thing I want you to see is just simply the so what of that. Okay, Jesus died on the cross. He went through this agony in the garden. But two last thoughts. The significance of the sacrifice. Two quick thoughts. First one is this. God's grace is costly. We understand that grace is free. It's unmerited favor. It's getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is, not get, is getting what you don't deserve. That's God's grace. And it's free. But folks, it cost God the life of His Son. And yes, He would raise Him from the dead. And yes, He's not dead anymore. He's not on the cross anymore. And He's not in a grave in Palestine. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And He's coming again. But folks, what He went through was horrible. That's what it cost the Father. So that you could have a relationship with Him. The last thought and I'm done is this. There's no other way. When Jesus prayed, Father, is there any other way? The answer continually was, there is no other way. The sin has to be paid for. God hates sin. you got a few blanks at the bottom of your bulletin there. Just write down a few verses. Acts 4, verse 12, says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus said to his, to his followers, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I've heard some scholars try to dismiss that and say, well, that word thee could be translated a. No. Read the second half of the verse. Jesus says, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth, and the life, not a life. Because he clarifies it at the end of the verse. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've read the book Radical by David Platt, there's a great illustration in there where David Platt is talking to a group of world leaders in various religions. All the, all the religions of the world, some of their leaders were all together. And he's trying to understand how they think they get to God. And here's what he said. He said, let me get this straight. Y'all see God as being up on a mountain. 
And there's many paths to get up there. And we're all just trying to get God up to God in our own way, right? They said, yeah, you got it. Bingo. That's what we believe. He said, let me tell you the good news. God came down off the mountain. You and I cannot climb the mountain. If we could, Jesus didn't have to die. There was no other way. God came down from the mountain in the person of Jesus Christ. And he looked on sinful man and said, I love you. And I'll prove it by sending Jesus to die for you. Even while you are sinners. Last verse. John fifteen twelve says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That sounds real narrow. Well, it is. But that's not my word. That's simply the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we don't totally understand all that. I'm still convinced, God, we don't understand the agony of Christ in the garden. And to think for nearly 33 years, he knew what your purpose was. But he went anyway. What love poured out on the cross. And God, the truth is, that was exactly your plan from the beginning. That was the purpose of God fleshed out through the whole Old Testament and ultimately fleshed out literally in the person of Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross, the final payment was made. God, thank you for a Savior. And God, thank you that today we celebrate a risen Lord. There's no other name but Jesus. We love you in Christ's name.